I see uh, um, a lot of new, new faces out there, actually, this Sunday. I didn't get a chance to introduce myself. Um, I'm Nathan Heiner, the associate pastor here at Country Oaks. Uh, Brent Whitney's our senior pastor, so if you're new, um, he's, he's on vacation. He took this uh, Sunday off. At his, he's, I think he's surprising his mom for her 70th birthday this Sunday. So, um, and, uh, but if, you, if you're new this morning, please uh, introduce yourself to me after the service. I'd love to, to, to talk with you and get to know you. And, and thank you and welcome uh, to our church. Uh, if you would, please um, open your Bibles to the, the book of content. I... I'm glad I got some laughs. I use that joke for the high schoolers, and they're just sick of it. So I do it all the time. I don't even think they think it's a joke. Um, it's a privilege for me uh, with Brent gone. I asked him if I could uh, preach this sermon, actually. Um, it's the, the closing, the last sermon to this like year-long uh, uh survey we've done through the meta-narrative of Scripture, through that word. If, you're, if that's new to you, I hope it's not for most of us now. It's just the large story of Scripture, the overarching story. And, and today we're going to close that up. We're going to do a couple topical sermons um, to end uh, this month out, and then we'll jump into a book and go verse by verse. Um, I think in the New Testament, uh, starting, um, I think in September, and, and Pastor Brent and I have been talking about it a little bit, but, um, but I asked him if I can close... Uh, um, this series up, and I, I wanted to start by just looking at the the Old Testament and kind of getting familiar of how how the books of the Old Testament are organized. And if you if you look at your books, uh, the books of the Old Testament on the content page, it's not an inspired page of, of scripture, but it's a very useful and helpful page. Um, Genesis through Deuteronomy are the first five books of the scriptures, and they're called the Pentateuch. Uh, written, by, written by Moses, and um, and from there we have Joshua to uh, Esther, Joshua to Esther, and from Joshua to Esther, those are called the historical books. And really, from from Genesis all the way through Esther, um, we have the history of the Old Testament. So Nehemiah is really chronologically the the, the last book of the Old Testament historically. Okay. Um, and that's all the history from Genesis to um, Esther. From there, we go to Job, which is actually probably the oldest book of, of Scripture. But Job through um, Sons of Solomon is the wisdom, uh, poetry uh, books. And then from Isaiah on is your prophets. And so just get our mind wrapped around Scripture. My goal today in preaching is to preach through the entire Old Testament history. First service laughed when I said, they don't say anything. It's very quiet in first service, and they all laughed when I said that. I actually told my um, father-in-law that I was going to try to do this this morning, and he asked if he should bring a lunch to church. <laughs> and he goes to first service, so... Um, I'm going to try to preach through Genesis all the way through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all, all today in one setting. And my goal today is just look, to look at the meta narrative of Scripture, the large story of Scripture. This is what we can call biblical theology, how it's all connected. Uh, my goal at looking at this is to maybe help us look at Scripture a little bit different than you've ever looked at it before. I hope. This time going through the meta narrative has helped see some things maybe you haven't seen before. Uh, why have we spent so much time on this? Well, if you don't know the large story of Scripture, you will look at the Old Testament as a bunch of, of many small, unconnected stories. And if you look at the Old Testament as many small, unconnected stories, you're going to misinterpret the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons, I mean, this is kind of some of the stuff that we want to talk about in this discipleship class that we're going to be starting up um, soon here. We want to go uh, to, to be a good disciple, um, or to be a good discipler, dis disciple people. We, you have to be a good interpreter of Scripture. And so we're going to start with how to interpret the Scriptures. Um, if, if, if you look at the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, as a bunch of small, unconnected stories, you'll start asking, what does this small unconnected story have to do with me and my life? 
And what moral lesson can I learn from it? My goal is, again, to help us look at Scripture a little differently and connect some of the dots of these smaller stories. And today, to really help you see that the Bible is not about you and what you need to do. The Bible is about him and what he has done. And I want to just give a warning before we get going this morning. I'm going to try, I'm going to do this or try to do this in one sitting. Um, So I'm going to miss some themes. Um, There's some overarching themes that that you may just love when you see in scripture that I'm, I'm going to have to skip over like kingdom, dominion, covenant, salvation through judgment, God's glory, sacrifice, missions, Israel, the church. There's books and books on these subjects in a biblical theology sense, looking at the theme across all of Scripture. And I encourage you to, to pick them up and read. But I, I, as I've, I've read them, I've seen a, a commonality that, that pretty much all of them say the Old Testament points forward to Christ, and the New Testament points back to what he did. And so today we're going to just look at that, right? Starting in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and therefore, he owns everything. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, really thought about that. God created everything out of nothing. I, I ask the high schoolers all the time, what did you do to be born? I mean, think about that. There's no such thing as a self-made man. He even owns your life. And everything in your life, everything you use in your life is a gift from him. Even the breath that you take, even the heartbeat that we have. Day one, he, he spoke light into existence. Day two, he stretched out the heavens. Day three, he, he made earth and vegetations. Day four, he made sun, moon, and stars. And, and I love verse 16. I go over this with the high schoolers all the time. It says this, And, the, and God made the two greater lights, the greater light to rule the, the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And the stars the most awesome things in creation, and we get three words, and the stars. It's like God said, you know what, I'll put these out there just so they can get a a, a clue, a little clue of how big I am. Day five, swarms and swarms of living creatures, birds and, and sea creatures. Day six, land animals, and yes, this includes dinosaurs. Lastly, man, as the pinnacle of his creation. It makes it sound like the Trinity came down and per- personally formed man out of the dust, then breathed life into him. In Psalms 139, which I feel is misinterpreted all the time as if we get glory because of this, this is about God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. It's to God's glory. God was made, or man was made well. Man was made last, and then, and then God gave man everything to rule over. And he said, don't eat from one tree. One tree. The seventh day, he rested, enjoyed his creation. Creation was good. Man had everything, and that lasted for two chapters. Chapter 3, we see the fall of man. The serpent, the snake, which was the devil, uh, tempts man. Man falls, he sins, he eats from the tree. This, this world that was good becomes a fallen world that we know of. There was four effects, at least on mankind, and guilt and shame. And when I say, say guilt, I mean true guiltiness and shame because of that. They knew they were naked before, they, they didn't care, but afterwards, their, their shame, they knew they were naked Then we see man's effort through works. They sewed fig leaves together like that would cover their guiltiness and and shamefulness. A separation from God. They were walking with God side by side. And and, and now when God came in their midst, man and his wife hid themselves. 
and a refusal to take responsibility, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, which is really saying, it's your fault, God. It's your fault. And whenever we don't take personal responsibility of our sins, it's the same thing we're doing. So God brings curses on Satan, on man's work, that, that work beforehand was, was fulfilling and good, and work afterwards is going to be hard. Woman's birth, there will be pain in childbirth, that, that that curse is being passed down to each child. And then a, a curse on Satan. And, and this curse on Satan is a promise or a hope to mankind. In Genesis 3.15, I like how the NASB states it, so I'm going to read it from there. 3.15 says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. The ESV says offspring. Seed, I think, is more appropriate. Uh, The woman's seed, and, and that's weird. Because biologically, who has the seed? Man. But who is the only person in the history of mankind, to be born without a seed from man. This is pointing to Jesus. He, I like the NIV, how it states this section of it. He, the seed, will crush your head, and you, Satan, will strike his heel. And what happens when a venomous snake strikes someone's heel? They die. To crush the serpent's head, the seed must die. Is this sounding familiar? I don't know what Adam and Eve knew, but they found hope in this curse in Satan. They found hope in this coming seed. They put their faith in this coming seed and were saved. This coming offspring who will crush Satan's head. And I know they had their, their, their hope in this because you go to chapter 4, verse 1, and it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she, she conceived and born Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Why is she so excited? She thought Cain was the seed. He would crush the serpent's head. He would redeem her and her husband. He was the chosen one. But she was very wrong. We know the story. Cain had a brother Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel. Cain murdered Abel. And and this is the first murder, the effects of a falling world, and murders have come since then. But what's the problem? And I want you to think, what's the problem from a meta-narrative standpoint, from a big story standpoint, from, from a biblical theology standpoint? If Cain wasn't the seed, and Abel is dead, therefore not the seed, who is the seed? And, and who is the seed passed down to? Well, we go to Genesis 4.25, which says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring or another seed. Instead of Abel, for Cain has killed him. So Abel's dead, it can't be him. Cain's this murderer that's gone, it can't be him. To Seth also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. So Adam has a son, Seth. Seth has a son, Enosh. The seed is getting passed down. And the author adds something very interesting. At that time, this is when Seth and Enosh were born. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The author is saying there's something special about these births. This is pointing to hope, a coming seed, a Lord. And it keeps going. Verse five, or chapter 5. What is chapter 5? A genealogy. Have you ever wondered as you're reading through Scripture, why so many genealogies? It's hope. Hope of a coming seed. Adam has a son, Seth. Seth has a son, Enosh. He has a son who has a son. He has a son who has a son, and so forth, until we get down to the genealogy ends with Noah. And that takes us to chapter 6 through 9, the flood. Mankind was so evil, 
in Genesis 6, verse 5. And I like how the New Living Translation just states this. So I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And God says, I'm taking them out. I'm taking them out. But what's the problem? Again, from a meta-narrative perspective, from a biblical theology perspective, from a big story perspective, what's, what's the problem? What about the seed? He hasn't come yet. What about the promise of God? This is one of the reasons God saves one family. To preserve the seed. Man is evil, but there still is hope. There's hope of this coming seed. Noah had the seed, and God saves him and his sons, and the seed was passed down to his son, Shem. You get to chapters 10 and 11. This is where we find the Tower of Babel, and we learn how the nations were created. But mostly, chapters 10 and 11 are genealogies of Noah's sons. In particular, Shem's family, the seed is passed down to Shem, and the seed's passed down to his son, and then he has a son, and then he has a son, and then he has a son, until his son has Abram. You get to chapter 12. And Genesis at chapter 12 really slows down and focuses in on one family, Abraham's family, who has promised three things. A land that your family will live in a promised land, a a beautiful land, a great nation that your family will will grow into a a great nation, and a blessing. And we learn throughout the Bible that this blessing is really pointed to the seed that will come from Abraham's family that will bless all the nations. So Abraham has a son, Isaac, Isaac has a son, Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob slash Israel has 12 sons. The 12 boys become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 boys are promised to be a great nation one day. But how do you you take one family and make it into a great nation? I mean, a family of 12, how do you make it into a great nation? Well, do anything. And this is where the story of Joseph comes in. Joseph gets thrown into slavery. Then he gets thrown into prison. Then, again, being God and uh, having everything in, in your control through his providence, Joseph ends up second in command in the most powerful nation in, in the world. And, and his invites his brothers to come. And Pharaoh tells him, hey, you can have this land over here. Your 12 boys in Egypt, and Egypt will protect you as you live in this land. And Egypt protects them, and they grow and grow and grow, and that leads us to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the, Lord, the land was filled with them. The author's trying to get a point across there, that this 12 boys, this one family has become a great nation, over 1 million, as Egypt protected them. But there's no promised land, and they're not a blessing. And Exodus 1.8 says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this king did not like the Israelites. The king said in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, the Israelites lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He's afraid that they're going to join the enemies as they come fight because they're multiplying so fast. So we've got to stop the, them from multiplying, from growing. Verse 11, Therefore they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, harsh slavery, 
But that didn't work. So, verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrew you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. All the baby boys were to be killed. Now, I want to take one second. We're going through this pretty quickly. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine if a dictator came to the hatchbury and said, every baby boy is going to be killed. The Israelites were God's chosen people. And as God's chosen people, during this time, they had to be thinking, God, what are you doing? Aren't we your chosen people? Side note, one of those themes that overarches all of Scripture is God using evil for good. And we see that in here. Because of these killings of these Israelite babies... One of the babies ends up in Pharaoh's own household. His name was Moses. He grows up in Pharaoh's household, educated and trained, then called by God to lead his people out of Egypt. And we get to Exodus 7 through 12, where is God is showing his power, and he makes this clear to the world two things. The whole world will know two things through, through this time. That there is one true God. And Israel belongs to him. And there's a showdown between Egypt and its false gods versus Israel and the one true God. Ten plagues. Each an attack on a false god in Egypt. The first one, blood in chapter 7. Then frog in chapter 8. Then gnats in chapter chapter 8. Flies in chapter 8. Livestock disease in chapter 9. Boils in chapter 9. Hail in chapter 9. Locusts in chapter 10. And darkness in chapter 10. And if you know any of the Egyptians, God's Ra was the sun god. And God said, no, he's not. I'm in control of the sun. I turn out the lights. And lastly, the tenth plague, death of the firstborn, chapter 12. Therefore, Pharaoh and the Egyptians begged the Israelites to leave. The world saw, and this is important because the, the world saw, that means that the Canaanites, when they fought against Israel, they knew better. When God judged them, they knew better. The world saw that there is one true God and he is powerful and Israel belongs to him. Therefore, if you're fighting against Israel, you're fighting against God. Again, Egypt lets Israel go, but that's not the end. You know, it's the end of a lot of our cartoons and movies but we have Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's 40 years in the wilderness before entering into the promised land. God takes this great nation and, and he's starting to, he prepares them for the promised land. He gives them the law and, and he's showing them how to live in the promised land. And we get to the book of, of Joshua. Moses dies and the leadership is passed down to Joshua. They are a great nation now. Not in the promised land. Joshua leads this now great nation into the promised land and wins miraculous battles, conquers the land, and divides it up among the 12 tribes. Israel is now a great nation and now in the promised land. But then we get to the book of Judges. One of the ugliest books in the entire Bible. Judges 1.1 says this, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, "Who of us is to go up and fight, um, or who who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites?" This is after the death of Joshua. Unlike Moses passing leadership down to Joshua, Joshua has no one he passes leadership down to. There's no leader, and you see this this vicious, vicious cycle happen twelve times in the book of Judges. Israel does evil. Nations come and oppress them. They cry out in distress. God raises up judges, which judges are just military leaders in, in the book of Judges. God saves Israel through the judges. Israel starts worshiping God again. 
until the judge dies. And then Israel does evil. Nations come and oppress them. And it continues, the cycle. And we learn that the cycle, as you read through Judges, is not just a cycle, but it's a downward spiral. As each time, it just seems like it gets eviler and eviler until you get to the last judge and Samson, and it's just a weird story. Verse, or chapter 21 of Judges, verse 25 says, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. There was no king, no leader, and everyone did what they wanted to do. They rejected God as their king and as their Lord. But what's the problem? Again, thinking of a, of a meta narrative, biblical theology, big story perspective, uh, what's the problem? Where is the seed? None of the judges were the seed. In the book of Judges, you just have this hopeless feeling, and then it just ends. Is Israel still God's chosen people? They look just like the other nations. If not, they look worse than the other nations. They, they, they look like Sodom and Gomorrah towards the end, but worse. Is the seed still coming? Is there any hope? Then all of a sudden, there's the book of Ruth. It's this love story. Why the story of Ruth? I ask myself that all the time. It's like a chick flick after the ugliness of judges. One of my professors said, it's like a flower growing out of a, of a pile of manure, which is the book of Judges. But Ruth is more than that. Ruth is more than just a love story. It is a beautiful love story. Ruth, this Moabite woman, falls in love with Boaz, this godly man. But Ruth is a book of hope. Especially the end. Ruth ends, chapter 4, verse 18, in a genealogy. Verse 18 says this, This then, in the family line of Perez, Perez was the father of uh, Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of um, Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. The seed is still coming. It's passed down through Abraham. It's been passed down through, through Ruth and Boaz. There's hope for Israel. There's hope for the world. The seed is still coming, and it's coming through the line of Jesse, the father of David. And we get to First and Second Samuel, where the Bible, again, focuses in on David's life this time. There's a king, Saul. He's a bad king. He's like a king like all the other nations. But then David comes. He's God's king. He was chosen by God. He's a man after God's heart. David was a great king. And the book of Ruth makes it clear that the seed has been passed down to David, yet we learn in First and Second Samuel that the seed isn't David. The seed will come from David. The seed will be a son of David. But David is a sinful man and not the promised seed. But he is a type of the seed that is coming. What does that mean? What's that word type mean? It's a theological term, which means that David's life points to the seed. David's life points to the seed. Think about David and Goliath. David is a type of the seed. Brent preached this sermon, and I think he did a great job at showing that. Goliath comes down. He says, send someone to fight the battle for Israel. If he wins, you win. Someone that will represent Israel. If he wins the battle, it will be like Israel won the battle. David fought the battle that Israel wouldn't and couldn't fight. He stood in the place of Israel in battle. He won. Therefore, Israel won. This points to Christ, who represented us, who stood in our place on the cross. 
Look, the story of David and Goliath is not about you and the giants you are facing. It's not a morality tale about courage in the face of one giant. If anything, we're Israel. Scared. It's about the seed, God's anointed one, and what he did on behalf of Israel. David's life points to Christ and what he did on the cross. You know how I know this for sure? Psalms 22. If you have your Bibles, just turn to Psalms 22 real quick. Psalms 22, verse 1, says, let me know if this sounds familiar, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds familiar, right? Yes, Jesus quoted that on the cross as, as as he was dying. But what if Jesus didn't quote that? Just this, this what if, just listen to this. This is a slight difference, but a huge difference. What if God, in his complete sovereignty, his complete control of everything, arranged events in David's life in such a way, to such a degree, that when David wrote Psalms 22, God intended it to point to the coming seed, to point to Christ. In other words, Jesus wasn't quoting David. David's life was pointing to Jesus. Can I back that what if up with any evidence? Well, let's just keep reading Psalms 22. Psalms 22 is David writing about what's going on in his life. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Skip down to verse 6. Again, David's writing about what's going on in his life. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They, They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and say, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? It was kind of similar to what people were saying while Jesus was on the cross. Skip down to verse 14. Again, David's writing about his life. I mean, this is not a direct prophecy. This is him writing about what's going on in his life. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Not broken, though. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. And my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is crazy. This is David talking about something in his life that that his hands and feet are pierced. But his life is pointing to Christ. Even David's life was not about David. David's life was about the seed that is coming. Side note, I think this is interesting, and I just want to leave it at that. Genesis 3.15 states, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman will crush the snake's head. I want to be true to this text that I'm going to go over right now and not allegorize it. And so at best, this is interesting, and I don't want to take it further than that. But there's this long description of Goliath and his armor in 1 Samuel. And the ESV says in 1 Samuel 15, 5, that Goliath was wearing a coat of mail armor. 
Well, what is a coat of mail? I looked it up in a commentary. It said Goliath's coat of mail was several hundred small bronze plates like fish scales. What other animal has scales like a fish? Serpent. The NASB actually, and I think this is a better translation, says he was clothed with scale armor. Like a snake? And how did David kill Goliath? By crushing in his forehead with a rock. Look, David's life points to Christ, the coming seed. In 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16, David tells God he wants to build him a house, a, a temple. And God says, no, this is what I'll do for you, David. I'm going to build you a house. The house that God would give David pointed to David's son as, and ultimately to the coming seed. 2 Samuel 7.14 says this, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by man with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. This is saying that, that, that God is going to treat David's offsprings, David's sons, like a son. And just like a, a father will discipline their son, if David's sons sin, God is going to discipline them. But this passage is ultimately pointing to the, the, the seed, the true seed, the true son of God. In verse 16, it says, Your house, again, this is the offspring that is coming, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be an everlasting or everlasted, or your throne will be established forever. This passage is saying that a seed will, will come from, from David's genealogy, and he will be a, a son of David, and the seed's kingdom will last forever. And we get to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Have you ever thought, what is First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? It's a big genealogy. So-and-so was keen, he died, and his son becomes keen. So-and-so was keen, he died, and his son became keen. So-and-so was keen, he died, and his son became keen. It's, it's a genealogy of the kings. It's a genealogy of David's line, the seed that's getting passed down. It starts with David's son, Solomon. Right? Solomon starts off as a good king then starts worshiping other gods. And because of this, the sin and false worship, God says, I'm taking away your kingdom. But in 1 Kings 11.36, it says, Yet to, to his son, so Solomon's son, I will give him one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Because of Solomon's sins, and the foolishness of Rehoboam, the kingdom is split into two. We have the northern kingdom with ten tribes, and the southern kingdom with one tribe, which is Judah. And why the southern kingdom? Why, why does it have a king? Because of the promise God gave to David. But from Solomon's, the kings just kind of from Solomon, the kings just kind of get worse. First and second king follows the seed, David's line. So-and-so has a son, and then so-and-so has a son. It's a long genealogy, but the genealogy starts down a, a spiral of sin. There's evil king after evil king until, and this is super important. I know this part of our scriptures, for most people, for me, is like the fuzziest part of scripture. Because of the sins of Israel and their kings, the kingdoms are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And the people are carried out into exile. The northern kingdom in 722 BC by the Assyrians were destroyed. And the southern kingdom, Judah, by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And the tribe of Judah 
is carried to Babylon and they live in this foreign nation away from the promised land for 70 years. And during this time, they must have been thinking, I know this has happened because of our sins. But what about your promise? What about your promise to Abraham, God, that we'd be a great nation, that we would have a promised land? What about the the everlasting throne of David? What about this coming king? What about the coming seed? We get to the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah and Esther, and we see some hope. Ezra and um, Esther, God moves in the king's heart to, to let the Israelites return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. Ezra 1, 1 says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia at this moment destroyed Babylon, and now they're in charge of the, the known world at that time. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah um, might be fulfilled. Jeremiah said that the Israelites would just be in exile for 70 years, and the 70 years are up. The Lord stirred up the spirit of um, Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put in it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This is crazy. This is a pagan king, a pagan kingdom that is saying this. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is the temple. The book of Ezra, we saw uh, the Israelites return to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. The book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah helps lead Israelites to rebuild the wall around the city. But then the Old Testament just ends. Have you ever thought about the ending of the Old Testament? There is no king. Where is David's son? What about the promise to David? Although they're now a kingdom again, it's a small nation under the control of a pagan nation. What about the promise to Abraham? A great nation, a blessing to all the nations. What about the seed? It ends with this like hopeless feeling. It feels like the ending of Judges almost. If you were an Israelite in this time, or if you just read the Old Testament and didn't know anything about the New Testament, you'd be tempted to ask, can we trust God's promises? And the answer is yes. Turn to Matthew 1.1. These are the first words of the New Testament. How does the New Testament start? It fits perfectly with the Old Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know what Matthew is saying there? This is the seed. This is what the whole Old Testament is pointing to. The son of David, he's going to fulfill the promises to David. The son of Abraham, he's going to fulfill the promises to Abraham. Verse 2, look at this. Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Skip down to verse 5. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Um, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And then we have the, the kings, Hezekiah, Josiah, all the way to the time of the deportation to Babylon in verse 12. You go down to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the, the, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, and that's the Greek word for, for anointed one. And then verse 17, look at this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. That's Genesis to First and Second Samuel. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. That's First and Second Samuel to First and Second Chronicles. And from the deportation to, uh, uh, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's First and Second Chronicles through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and all the way through the 400 years of silence. The time between the Testaments. It all points to Christ. The seed of the woman. Born of a virgin. A son of Abraham. A son of David. A son of man. The son of God. The Old Testament. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the one that will crush the serpent's head in in Genesis 3.15 by going to the cross and dying for our sins. It's all about Jesus. You You know what that means? The Bible is not primarily about you and what you need to do. It's all about Jesus and what he did. And we need to read our Bible this way. We're going to do this discipleship class and, and uh, I encourage all that want to be a part of it starting in September. Um, we're going to start by hermeneutics, how to interpret scripture. We're going to disciple someone. We need to know how to interpret scripture to speak it into people's lives. But we should be asking a question every time we go to scripture. What can I learn about God in this passage? Then... How should my life reflect this knowledge? Let me end with this. Not even your life is primarily about you and what you need to do. It's about Jesus and what he did. Is that your testimony? Do people look at you and see what Christ has done? How about this? When you share your testimony, is your testimony more about you or Jesus? Your life is not about you. And you know what? That's a good thing. If your life was all about you and all there was was your life, then your life would be meaningless. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, and if Christ has not been raised, meaning that this is not true. Christ is a liar and there is no meta narrative. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It means there is no meta narrative. And, and if all there is is your story, there's no larger story. If all there is is your life and, and that's it, then verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Jesus is just a good teacher, not a savior, not a God, nothing else. We are of all people most to be pitied. Then verse 32. If the dead are not raised, if there is no afterlife, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know the biggest lie of the postmodern worldview, which is the, the worldview that the American culture has adopted, is that there is no meta narrative. There is no large story that connects all of our smaller stories. So let us eat, drink, and before tomorrow we die. It's a hopeless worldview. This is where the saying, you only live once, comes from. You know what? That's a lie. There is a meta-narrative. There is a story bigger than you and me that we are a part of. And that's a good thing. That means your story has meaning. That means you can live for something bigger than you. And you know what? No matter what, you are living for something bigger than you. 
your life will glorify God, either as trophies of God's mercy and grace for eternity, Ephesians 2, 7. For those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and said, you are Lord, you died for my sins, you are raised, you are, you are sitting on the right hand of the throne right now. Or by being displays of God's holy justice. Romans 9.22 Either way, your life is not ultimately about you. It's about Him. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you haven't put your faith in Him and what He has done. Again, there's guests here. If If you've heard this message for the first time, please come talk with me. Today is the day of salvation. Do not leave. Do not leave. You are facing the wrath of a holy God. But there is good news. That holy God sent his son, the seed of a woman, to crush serpent's head by dying on the cross for your sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, Lord, I thank you for the meta-narrative of Scripture, which is the meta-narrative of creation, redemption history. I thank you that there is a story outside of me that is bigger than me. A story that I, I have a part of, be it a small, tiny, insignificant part of this grand story, yet an important part. Yet, my life has meaning because of it. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that, that how I raise my kids has meaning. How I handle your scripture, there's meaning to that. How I live my life, there's meaning to that. God, I pray that we, we, we come to church realizing that. We don't come to church thinking about ourselves, thinking that this life is all about us, that we are a church that, that has a testimony of, of, of the meta-narrative that, that life is bigger than us. That we don't come to church and ask, what can church give me? But we come to church and ask, how can I encourage others? Because it's not about me. Let our city see that in us, Lord. Let us look for opportunities to encourage, to love, to glorify you. God, I thank you for your scriptures. It's so amazing. I just pray that you're with us right now. In your son's name, amen.